Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. Well, The Guardian has an update on the giant New Zealand potato that we have previously covered for breaking a Guinness World Record. Mm. Uh-oh. <laughs> has it become sentient? Did it like... <laughs> well, if you remember, they named it Doug. It was a nice couple in New Zealand. Oh, yeah. uh, remember? <laughs> potato named Doug. Who could forget? Uh-huh. Well, Cool spud dud. <laughs> Spud, exactly. Except, turns out Doug is not a spud. Oh, what? What is it? A tuber of a gourd. (laughs) It's a gourd Uh, tuber. All right. Yeah, I know. It's a little sad, but, you know, (laughs) their dreams have turned to mash. (laughs) Oh, my God. After the Guinness Book of World Records returned a reply to them and said, scientific testing found it was not, in fact, a potato. The couple said that it sure looked and tasted like a potato when they first hit the tuber with a hoe last August. Of course, he does add he's never tasted a gourd tuber. Well, now, hang on, though. Surely they can apply to be the record-setting tuber of a gourd. Like, are those things just naturally massive and they got big ones everywhere? Surely it's got to be big in a different category. But a category of one's own instead of what is surely a more globally popular category. pre-existing category. (laughs) The potato, but... You know, it's caused a little bit of an issue. Well, not an issue. It was something of a local celebrity. If you remember, they were posting photos of it on Mm -hmm. Facebook. They even put a hat and carted it around (laughs) a little trolley. It was a 17-pound thing, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. equal to a couple of sacks of regular potatoes or, as the Guardian notes, one small dog. But unfortunately, the existing Guinness record of a 2011 monster from Britain that weighed in under five kilograms remains the record holder. But Craig Brown remains a big believer in Doug, who still sits in their freezer. Quote, I say g'day to him every time I pull out some sausages. He's a cool character, (laughs) Craig Brown said. Quote, he is the world's biggest not a potato. Yeah, I think Doug still gets credit. <laughs> I'm I'm straight up mad at Guinness right now that they could be like, well, it's not a potato, so it doesn't get. It's still a massive tuber. There should be a new category. I'm petitioning them. You know, who knows what you'll dig up? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> All right, next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from openculture.com, and it's titled, In 1704, Isaac Newton predicted that the world will end in 2060. Oh boy, that's uh, not far along, is it? <laughs> yeah, not not super far. So we have become quite used to pronouncements of doom from scientists predicting the sixth mass extinction due to the measurable effects of climate change and from religionists declaring the apocalypse due to a surfeit of sin. <laughs> it's almost impossible to imagine these two groups of people agreeing on anything other than the ominous portent of their respective messages. 
But in the early days of the scientific revolution, Sir Isaac Newton stood out as a particularly odd coexistence of esoteric biblical prophecy, occult beliefs, and a rigid formal mathematics that not only adhered to the inductive scientific method, but also expanded its potential by applying general axioms to specific cases. As he was formulating the principles of gravity and the three laws of motion, for example, Newton also sought the legendary philosopher's stone and attempted to turn metal to gold. Moreover, the devoutly religious Newton wrote theological treatises interpreting biblical prophecies and predicting the end of the world. The date he arrived at? 2060. Newton describes his reckoning, R-E-C-C-O-N-I-N-G, spelling of the time. Mm -hmm. So, then the time, times, and half a time are 42 months or 1260 days or three years and and a half. The period of 1260 days, if dated from the complete conquest of the three kings, AC 800, will end AC 2060. It may end later, but I see no reason for its ending sooner. Oh, so he was an optimist. That's nice. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so Newton further demonstrates his confidence in the next sentence, writing that his intent, though not to assert an answer, should in any event put a stop to the rash conjectures of fanciful men who are frequently predicting the time of the end. Hmm. So how did he arrive at this number? Proposition 1. The 2300 prophetic days did not commence before the rise of the little horn of the he-goat. What? Two. Wait. Those <laughs> days did not commence after the destruction of Jerusalem and ye temple by the Romans A.D. 70. Three. The time, times, and half a time did not commence before the year 800 in which the Pope's supremacy commenced. Four. They did not commence after the reign of Gregory the Seventh, 1084. Fifth, the 1290 days did not commence before the year 842. Sixth, they did not commence after the reign of Pope Greg VII, 1084. Seven, finally, the difference between the 1290 and 1335 days are a part of the seven weeks. Therefore, the 2300 years do not end before ye year 2132, nor after 2370. The time, times, and half time do not end before 2060 nor after 23040. The 1290 days do not end before 2090 nor after 1374, but that was likely Newton meant 2374. Mm. Um, I'm sure you were able to follow all of that from the audio, but if not, you can check out the <laughs> article for a breakdown of this kind of, you know, biblical date justification. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like they've got like 13 or 14 different prophecies of when the world's going to end. And just where do they all overlap? Well, none of them could possibly be earlier than 2060. Yeah, I think that is indeed what he's doing. Thank you, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) I guess. I mean, my thing is, I'm much more comfortable with this as a concept of like, he's refuting all these other people, where he's just Mm -hmm. like, look, you're all wrong. It couldn't possibly be any time until way in the future. So shut up. Like that seems much more reasonable to me than he's like, I'm going to figure out when the world is ending based on all these prophecies, which I'm sure is wrong. He was insane and did lots of other crazy (laughs) alchemy things. So I'm sure he was into like, this is when the world's going to end. But I choose to believe that he wasn't. (laughs) Yeah, it was just an intellectual exercise. Exactly. Trying to apply a philosophical logic proof Mm -hmm. to (laughs) this area that typically resists such analysis right yeah and whatever the exact date we see him much less certain around the precise year 
Newton pushes around some other dates like 2344, 2090, 2132, 2374, and all of them seem a little arbitrary, but given the nice roundness of the number, writes and the fact that it appears in more than one letter, 2060 has become his most memorable dating for the apocalypse. So I can't, like, go blow all my money and life savings in 2059 and expect to be fine because it's, <laughs> it's probably not ending in 2060. I'll be really yeah. old by then, though. I mean, I could probably blow all my money then anyway. It's fine. I mean, you know, if Jesus returns the next year, I wonder how he'll feel about that fiscal spending, you know? <laughs> But I don't know. I don't know. Next link. Next link. All right. This next article is from the New York Times, and it's called Inside the Hot Market for Videos of Idling Trucks. (laughs) I just thought of my dear five-year-old nephew who's, like, obsessed with trains and all of the train content that exists on YouTube and streaming Mm -hmm. services now of, like, just trains doing their train thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, to be fair, this one actually sounds weirder than it is. Basically, what's happening is that the gig economy has expanded into law enforcement, which is to say you can now oh. get paid to be a narc. Oh, gosh. So in New York City, where all this is taking place, it has been illegal since the 1970s for vehicles to let their engines idle for an excessive amount of time in the hopes of reducing air pollution. And as you can imagine, enforcement on this has always been extremely spotty. Like, it was mostly one of those unknown statutes where if a cop wanted an excuse to cite you for something, that was one option they could always throw at you. Mm -hmm. But in 2018, city officials decided that actually the air pollution really was a problem and they really did want to stop all the idling trucks all over the city. So they introduced a program where citizens could take incriminating videos of trucks idling in their neighborhoods for a minimum of three minutes with the company's name legible on the side, and then submit that video for a 25% cut of the fine that the city could then levy against the company. Wow. And it's not a small amount of money. The minimum fine for a company's first violation is $350. So these citizen narcs are getting paid $87.50 for just over three minutes of work. They slow-rolled the program at first to make sure they had all the kinks worked out, but then in 2020, the city officially began advertising the policy with a campaign endorsed by, and this is absolutely true, 80s rock star Billy Idol. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Their slogan was, Billy Never Idols, and it took off. Prior to 2018, the city would get maybe a handful of complaints per year. But in 2021, they took in more than 12,000 videos (gasps) of idling trucks. Oh, boy. They collected more than $2.4 million in fines and paid back more than $724,000 in bounties to individual citizens. But the bulk of those payments, about 85% of them, are actually going to a group of about 20 top performers who have really dedicated themselves Mm -hmm. to the cause and pretty much made it a full-time job for themselves. Oh, my gosh. One such man is Paul Slapicus, an 81-year-old former Marine and retired computer specialist from Queens. He says he pulled in $64,000 in 2021 (gasps) just by paying attention during his daily exercise walks. He said, quote, I would expect to get three a day without even looking. (gasps) Ernest Weld, a 47-year-old environmental attorney, says he filed over $200,000 worth of bounties in 2021, (gasps) but 
He has yet to see most of the money because each fine takes a long time to wind its way through the system, and sometimes the videos get rejected by the city for what Weld considers unreasonable standards. So sometimes, for example, he says the company's name on the side of the truck isn't entirely legible, but the license plate is. But Weld says the city staff aren't willing to take that extra step to look up the vehicle and identify it. Yeah. Other times, the city will say that the engine idling noise isn't clearly audible on the video, even though the video shows clouds of smoke flowing out of the exhaust pipe. And what's more, it's up to the bounty hunters to file a claim for the bounty after the fact, meaning they have to stay on top of public records so they can know when a fine has been levied on something that they told them about. The job has also gotten much more dangerous than it was in the beginning because truck drivers are now on the alert for anyone that they think might be filming them. Weld says he has a whole separate folder in his computer for filing assault charges against truck drivers who come after him, which he's a lawyer, so it makes sense that he could go ahead and do a lot of this work. But 81-year-old Mr. Slapicus isn't interested in being knocked to the ground by a burly truck driver, so he (laughs) has started taking a more clandestine approach. He says he now dresses up as a bumbling tourist every day with a map sticking out of his pocket and a camera dangling around his neck. And he pretends to have confused conversations on an old flip phone while his real iPhone is hidden on his body. He won't say where. (laughs) And stays pointed at the truck until his watch timer tells him that three minutes have gone by. As for what he says into the fake flip phone, Slapicus usually recites Shakespeare, including King Richard's famous soliloquy that begins, Now is the winter of our discontent. on the fence about it like when i first started reading it i was like no it's bad to have citizens reporting each other to the cops like that doesn't create a great society but also i think it's really adorable to picture <laughs> mr slapicus with his little flip phone but secretly he's a spy and he's beating these guys like, i don't know i feel good for him i like that he has something to keep him busy in his retirement <laughs> i'm just like is this what awaits me in old age uh, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, you know what is so tired? Metal detectors wired being your there own you environmental go. bounty hunter in heavily polluted urban areas. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Now for something completely different from CNET. It's a trap. We could use murder hornets' own sex pheromones to spell their doom. Mm. (laughs) Okay. Flying Asian giant hornets. They're already here, folks. They have invaded parts of Canada and the U.S. Mm -hmm. and sparked noticeable worries that they could damage our already fragile honeybee population. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they're huge and they have this habit of decapitating victims, but a new study offers hope for creating effective traps using their own sex pheromone as bait. We've got an international Mm. team of researchers from the Chinese Academy of Sciences and the University of California, San Diego, that recently published work in decoding the Hornet Queen's sex pheromone components. They used gas chromatography and mass spectrometry, and they were able to identify the major chemicals in the sex pheromone. We have seen through experiments that male hornets are sensitive to the pheromone and we're thinking that the traps could somewhat reduce the population of males. But the main thing we're getting out of this is that we could find out how to track and predict the hornets spread because that's sort of the wild factor right now. The Washington State Department of Agriculture and U.S. Department of Agriculture have been tracking the insects and eradicating their nests whenever we find them. 
But the main researcher of this paper is not a fan of the moniker murder hornet. Quote, they are large and perhaps frightening, but not truly murderous. They can be amazing social insects, but they don't belong in North America, and they do harm our critical bee populations, so we should remove them. So, you know, a little bit of interspecies tact here. Still, it sounds like he's making excuses for him. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> All I'm going to say is that no hornet has ever shown me any tact. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this basically seems to me like the scientific version of dressing Bugs Bunny up like a girl to lure. You know what I mean? Like they're just like, oh, this box is full of sexy female murder Mm -hmm. hornets, lady, you know, and and (laughs) or the Beetlejuice where I think in the model he makes like a little like strip club and like the cockroaches start going into it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, you know, you got to use whatever works. I'm not blaming the scientists. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying I was prepared from a young age to understand that this was how. You trap (laughs) any species, I guess. Yeah, that's female conditioning and social conditioning that we get that maybe the guys don't. So uh, point us. Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from realclearscience.com. It's titled, Weird Things Happen When People Are Blindfolded for 96 Hours. That's Hmm. a long time. Yeah. (laughs) Alvaro Pascua Leone, a professor of neurology, led a team that blindfolded 13 healthy young adults for 96 hours straight. During that time, as part of a broader study, participants were taught Braille for four hours a day, engaged in tactile stimulation activities like puzzles and clay modeling, took daily brain scans, and otherwise lived their lives. They got dressed, they ate, they walked around, they went to the gym, all in total numbing darkness. Wait, like outside that i wasn't sure about yeah because like in the lab if they have a gym okay fine you're groping your way there and you're doing your thing surely they didn't let them wander around and truly live their lives <laughs> i mean, maybe they had somebody helping them. i don't that just sounds insane to me yeah they're a little scant on the details there but mm-hmm. uh yeah who knows you know 2004 wild year <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, you sweet summer child. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The researchers described a specially designed blindfold was worn that prevented all light perception. It was held in place by a Velcro strap and further secured by ace bandages. The blindfold permitted full motion of the eyes as well as opening and closing of eyelids. Potential tampering with the blindfold by the subjects was controlled with the use of a piece of photographic paper attached to the inside of the blindfold. During their time deprived of vision, the subjects documented their thoughts, feelings, and perceptions with an audio recorder. Hmm. Ten of the 13 witnessed sudden, uncontrollable visual hallucinations that generally began between the first and second day. Hmm. A 29-year-old woman saw a terrifying green face with big eyes when standing in front of what she knew to be a mirror. A 24-year-old man saw mirrors, lamps, trees, and full bright landscapes. A 24-year-old woman saw a splotch of light in the exact form of Elvis Presley. (laughs) A 23-year-old man witnessed outlines of moving puzzle pieces that warped into other amorphous shapes. A 20-year-old woman reported seeing a butterfly that became a sunset, an otter, and finally a flower. She she also reported seeing cities, skies, kaleidoscopes, lions, and sunsets. Okay, other dimensional universe. I want all we got to do is have a blindfold on for ninety six hours. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Seems a lot easier than drugs. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Yeah. The vast majority of the subjects who hallucinated also saw flashing lights at various times, and all of the hallucinations occurred when the subjects were awake. 
Their blindfolding did not seem to affect their sleep nor their dreams. And Pasquale Leone actually wasn't surprised at hearing of the vivid hallucinations. This is what the brain does, he says. Our brain plays with us continually. He was more surprised, however, at the result of subjects' brain scans. By day two, the scans showed that the volunteers' brains were already starting to change. And by day five, touch was stimulating the brain's visual cortex. Huh. So the brain was learning to rely more on touch than sight. Mm. Pasquale Leone recalled, they were seeing with the tip of their finger. I was expecting changes, but not this rapid. Yeah, with five days, that's crazy. Yeah, super fast. He surmises that the connections must have already been there and that the experiment simply unmasked them. What neuroscientists have called the visual cortex for the past century seems not to be devoted exclusively to the eyes. Pasquale Leone wonders whether it might be more accurately defined as the area of the brain best able to discriminate spatial relationships and that it will use any relevant sensory input. Hmm. Yeah, and a long time ago when I first, actually my first damn interesting article I covered was about a guy who I think went into complete darkness for like 30 days. Oh, yeah, he was like an artist or something. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah, and he like was just immersed in this surreal world of like emotions and like be- recalling the past and seeing things constantly, just like nonstop hallucinations, like wow. absolutely wild. I've always kind of wanted to try this. Maybe yeah. I will. Like sensory yeah. deprivation, deprivation tanks have always kind of intrigued me, perhaps not in this current pandemic environment, but that seems kind <laughs> of like a nice baby toe into the waters of make your own brain trip on itself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you could get that whole like mind opening ayahuasca experience breakthrough mm-hmm. where you're basically like, oh, I understand my relationship with my parents now or whatever yeah. but you didn't have to do anything but wear a blindfold for five days right? that would be listen we could all become daredevil is what i'm getting out of this <laughs> catching a brick or anybody else sees it you know yeah <laughs> next link next, next link. link all right well we all love a good scientist feud Ooh. and to that end we have an article from real clear science called why the father of the hydrogen bomb hated Carl Sagan. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yes. And I imagine most of our listeners know who Carl Sagan is, but just in case, he was, of course, a famed scientific author, TV presenter, basically the Neil deGrasse Tyson of the 1970s. But very few people know who the so-called father of the hydrogen bomb was, which, it turns out, was a big part of his beef with Carl Sagan. Mm. So his name was Edward Teller, And he was not shy about letting the world know what he thought of Carl Sagan. Even two years after Sagan died from bone marrow cancer, Teller was asked his opinion of the man and said, quote, he was a nobody. What did he do? I know he criticized me. That's the only accomplishment of his that I know of. He never did anything worthwhile. Yeah. Wow. So not uh, not gently debating different ideas here. He hated him. So, you know, what went wrong between them? The answer, in short, is nuclear proliferation. Mm -hmm. As we noted, Edward Teller was instrumental, along with Stanislas Ulum, in creating the hydrogen bomb. And he was kind of a massive fan of nuclear weapons, like to the point that he wouldn't even acknowledge that there could be any downsides to every country having as many nukes (laughs) as they wanted. And in his slight defense, his main argument was that nuclear power had a lot of uses beyond war. Obviously, there was the question of energy production, but he also thought that we should be using nukes to deflect asteroids 
and even just for, like, excavating dirt for construction projects. Wow. He also believed strongly in the Strategic Defense Initiative, which at the time was a system of satellites colloquially known as Star Wars that were supposed to protect the U.S. from any incoming nuclear missiles. So I guess he sort of felt like nuclear war just wasn't a problem we had to worry about, at least here in the U.S., which... If you stop there, it kind of paints him as a naive optimist, which is maybe not so bad. But then you keep reading and you find out that actually Teller did think that we should be able to use nuclear weapons for war. His reasoning was that if a just war was necessary, then a quick death by nuke was actually more humane than a long drawn out battle with lots of maiming and casualties. So, you know, obviously uh, quite a position. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) there's there's a lot there for Carl Sagan to disagree with. Mm -hmm. And he did Mm -hmm. very publicly. At the time, he was a professor at Cornell University, and he attached his name to a study that was really done by some of his undergraduates. But he put his name on it in order to raise the public profile of the study's findings, which was all about the concept of nuclear winter. This was the idea that one of the unintended side effects of a nuclear war would be all the ash and soot that would be blown into the air, which would block out the sun and drop global temperatures by as much as 25 degrees Celsius, which would then lead to crop failures and worldwide famine, generally a bad time. Teller, of course, thought this was nonsense. He said the whole concept of nuclear winter was highly speculative and called Sagan an excellent propagandist. The two men had a formal debate on the subject in front of a special session of Congress. And during this time, it seems like Teller was maybe sort of trying to maintain a civil relationship with Sagan. But ultimately, he just couldn't get over his belief that Sagan's message was resonating with people exclusively because he was famous and not because of the science. Hmm. Dr. David Morrison, a senior scientist at NASA's Ames Research Center and a friend to both of the men, describes an incident where Teller and Sagan were having breakfast together at an airport and three strangers came up to ask Sagan for his autograph, but no one recognized Teller. Hmm. Sagan, on the other hand, seemed to keep a cooler head, (laughs) which I'm sure is part of why he was so beloved, Mm -hmm. but he was not completely devoid of snark. In his book, The Demon Haunted World, he described Teller's crusade as being more about personal pride, saying, quote, Somehow, somewhere, Teller wants to believe that he will be acknowledged by the human species as its savior and not its destroyer. Oof. The irony being, of course, that he's pretty much destined to be remembered as neither. You know, when (laughs) I think about the possibility of Russia or whoever using nuclear weapons, my first thought is not, oh, that Edward Teller. (laughs) It is worth noting that modern simulations still confirm that nuclear winter is entirely plausible as a concept. But it, of course, depends quite greatly on how many bombs and exactly where they're detonated. You know, it's not a given, but it's certainly a possibility. So, you know, on that cheery note. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. Well, Vice has an article. Some custom Legos of Zelensky and Molotov cocktails have raised significant funds for Ukraine. What? Have you guys heard of Citizen Brick? No. Wait, so like (laughs) Molotov cocktails that are Legos. And there are pictures. So if you go to Motherboard (laughs) by Vice, I highly recommend it. I I do have to say that since the publication of this article, they have predictably sold out. Sure. But it's a custom Lego store in Chicago, and they are selling these custom design Legos modeled after Ukrainian president 
Volodymyr Zelensky and Molotov cocktails. <laughs> All the proceeds went to a charity that provides medical aid to Ukraine and the surrounding countries. But if you are still interested in the other stuff they have, <laughs> it's kind of amazing. For example, for $25, you can get a carry minifig complete with the blood and everything. You can oh. get a knife-wielding green beret or even a squid game player. Wow. <laughs> they even have accessory Lego pieces like packs of cigarettes, condoms, and bandaged heads that allow Lego fans to live out fantasies that don't always go down with Lego's corporate image. But this is, like, supported by Lego. Like, they're using the Lego terminology. Yeah, I don't know how the licensing works here at all. And I'm a little leery to, you know, shut this place down. Although, you know, with the amount of press they've gotten, they've already been around for a while. But yeah, if Lego didn't know about them <laughs> yeah. before, they certainly know about yeah. them now. There you go. And, you know, maybe 100% of the sale of those particular items going to direct relief to assist with medical supplies mm. that you know it's an interesting pr war if they decide to go to war which would be the worst thing considering what the <laughs> anyway right. i'm in circles but yeah according to citizen brick it sold out and raised i think over sixteen thousand dollars which was at the time of this publication wow. quote we're scrambling to make another batch because this got picked up on the ukrainian instagram page so uh yeah it went super <gasps> viral and they're not the only group selling imagery of the war to raise money for charity. Uh, there is a St. Javelin charity that has raised over a million dollars for direct humanitarian aid to Ukraine by selling t-shirts, stickers, flags, and patches decorated with a Christian saint clutching an FGM-148 Javelin anti-tank missile launcher. Wow. 2022, y'all. <sighs> I mean, I guess they've always had pirates with little blunderbusses and swords. Like, I can't really make a justification of this is an old-fashioned weapon, this is a new weapon, they're somehow different. But that does feel weird. Yeah, it's, I don't like it's, it. It's no longer abstracted, right? You don't have a soldier. Yeah. And especially with if you go through the rest of their offerings, you can get specific helmet types related to specific infantries, countries, and even mm. war periods. So. It almost has this kind of like the guys who go out and do Civil War reenactments. Maybe there are people right, who want to do right. with Lego and there are ways to do it. But I did peek at the website. They have one called, I think, like Real American. Pretty sure it's a Hulk Hogan minifig. So I'm just saying, <laughs> if, if you like Lego and you want to check it out, Citizen Brick, keep your eyes posted. Maybe they'll have more Molotov cocktails. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from CNN.com, and it's titled, Tokyo Schools Drop Controversial Dress Code on Hair and Underwear Color. Oh, I, I'm going to just say right up front, I've read some articles about this, and I got into like a legit fight with my husband about <gasps> this topic. Ooh. So oh. go ahead. Yeah, go ahead and introduce it, and then I'll tell you what we were spatting about. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in your take. So <laughs> under the public school system's dress code, all students had to dye their hair black. Certain yeah. hairs were prohibited, and even underwear had to be a designated color. But these rules, which have recently come under scrutiny and been criticized as outdated, will now be abolished, the city's authorities announced this week. A total of five rules will be dropped by nearly 200 public schools across the Japanese capital, including regulations on hair and underwear color, and a ban on two-block hairstyles, which are long on top and short at the back, a style currently in fashion in many countries. Hmm. Other rules being cut include the practice of punishing students with a form of house arrest, and ambiguous language in the <laughs> guidelines on what is considered typical of high school students. 
The policy changes go into effect at the start of the new academic year on April 1st. The move came after Tokyo's Board of Education conducted a survey last year that asked schools, students, and parents about their views on the policies. Tokyo isn't the only Japanese city with a strict dress code. Similar rules are in effect around the country, with many schools requiring students to wear shoes and socks of a designated color. Schools in Fukuoka on the island of Kyushu also have rules restricting students' hairstyles and dictating both the color and pattern of their underwear, according to Japanese newspaper Asahi Shimbun. The issue was thrust into the spotlight in 2017 when a high school student in Osaka Prefecture sued her school, a case that attracted national attention and prompted widespread public debate on restrictive dress codes. She alleged that she had been forced to dye her naturally brown hair black when she first joined the school, and was told to re-dye it every time her brown roots grew back. Ugh. She was mm-hmm. eventually given academic penalties <gasps> for not dyeing it often enough. Oh my gosh. Yup. Yeah, and her, <laughs> her lawsuit complained that the frequent coloring had damaged her hair and scalp and caused her mental distress. Yeah. Last year, she mm-hmm. won 330,000 yen, which is about $2,800 in damages. <laughs> it sounded so much better in the yen dollar. Yeah. Oh, I know. Gosh, that's such a pittance for, I mean, there are documented cases of people getting autoimmune diseases triggered by chemical flares caused Mm. by hair dye, especially. I had no idea. That's intense. So other students and families have since spoken out with similar complaints, while several schools have announced changes to their dress codes. This spring, a school in Yube, Yamaguchi Prefecture, will become the first in the city to introduce a genderless uniform, with students of all genders given a choice between slacks and skirts. A major break from the strictly gendered dress code still widespread in Japan. That's huge for Japan, too, because, like, you know, the whole culture there is a lot more Mm -hmm. Mm conformity-oriented than it is in the United States, but... It is a country that has been diversifying slowly but surely. Yeah. And boy, the best hair ideas I've ever gotten have all been from Japanese street fashion picks. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Well, and that was really the crux of my fury at reading this. I was like, because I'm honestly, I tend to be fairly conservative when it comes to the school can tell you what to do. I'm like, yeah, you're at school. They can make you wear a uniform. You don't get to express yourself. When I was in high school, we had a whole thing where it was a very integrated high school and we had actual gang problems. Yeah, And same. the gang members were not allowed to wear gang colors, but they had figured out a way to put them into their shoelaces. And so like mm. middle of the year out of nowhere, the school basically said, OK, all shoelaces now have to be black, white or brown. And what you had was a bunch of these upper middle class privileged kids going, what? I don't I can't take mm-hmm. this. My freedom of expression. And they all were like wearing rainbow shoelaces in protest. And at the time I was like, guys, it's not for you. Shut up. Like this, <laughs> these are real problems. They're genuinely trying to stop gang violence in your own school that you're all kind of not even aware of. And you're turning mm-hmm. this into a freedom of expression thing. And you're wrong. But that being said, there is a huge difference between saying you can't have a certain hairstyle at school and saying you have to actively dye your hair. Mm-hmm. Like that to me, yeah. like it's it's racist. It's crazy to me that yeah. they would say yeah. you are a full-blooded Japanese person with brown right. hair, but we have to <laughs> pretend that all Japanese people have black hair. And that was like, that was where the argument with my husband came in because he was like, well, it's your own argument here. They're not doing it to say all Japanese people have black hair. They're doing it because they had people who were bleaching their hair or doing mm-hmm. other like wild mm-hmm. colors and they somehow couldn't figure out how to put in the dress code 
You can't have bleached hair or dyed red hair without just saying everybody has to dye their hair black. And I was like, well, that's a lack of creativity on their part. Yeah. It should be continually changing, especially for something like underwear, which in theory for especially high school students, nobody should be seeing. Well, yeah. I'm like, how are you checking that? You're going to do a spot check in the Mm. girl's bath? Like, no, it's just. I mean, you know, it is Japan. So there may have been a process, but in any regard, like. (laughs) Well, I'm going to officially report to my husband that you're both on my side. Happy to help in your shadow war. I appreciate it. Thank you. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. Well, this one is a quickie, but it is adorable. You may remember a few weeks ago, we had an article talking about how awful and destructive beavers are in the Mm -hmm. Alaskan wild. Mm. But we want to remain impartial here. So we now have an article about how great beavers can be for some environments. It's from the BBC, and it's called Beavers Back in London After 400-Year Absence. So, of course, the reason they've been gone for so long is that beavers were hunted to extinction in Britain back in the 16th century. And it's, you know, an island, so once they were gone, there really was no chance for them to come back. But the Enfield Council in North London has collaborated with scientists at Capel Manor College to ship in a pair of beavers and let them loose on the grounds of Forty Hall Farm. The beavers are two years old, and the male and female couple are named Justin Beaver and Sigourney Beaver. (laughs) Wow. Ironically, the beavers moving north into Alaska are a problem because of climate change, while these new beaver residents in London are intended to counteract the effects of climate change. Flooding has become a regular problem in many rivers of Britain, and it's hoped that the dams the beavers build will provide stopgaps in the erratic rainfall and reduce flooding downstream. Technically, they haven't been released into the wild yet because the farm is considered an enclosed habitat. But the goal is, of course, to release them once they successfully settle in and start mating. The male beaver, who comes from a family of beavers in Yorkshire that have been bred in captivity specifically for flood reduction, seemed to acclimate quickly to his new environment and headed straight into the pond. The female, however, is a wild-caught beaver from Scotland which is immediately made me picture a beaver in a kilt, which is adorable. (laughs) (laughs) Extra ginger beard. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Where beaver reintroduction has already been underway for a while, and she had to be coaxed out of her crate at first, but she eventually entered a shallow stream and headed off in the direction of the male beaver. So the team is hopeful that the two will soon find love. Once they have, Dr. Royce and Campbell Palmer, the beaver restoration lead at the Beaver Trust says they plan to set up a beaver cam live stream so the public can see how useful they are for the local environment. Unfortunately, they also plan to let the public eventually rename the beavers, which I have to say, I hope they don't. I think that's a terrible yeah. idea. Why? They're gonna, that, that ain't broke. Come yeah, on. They're going to be called Beaver McBeaver Face, which is funny in its own way. I won't <sighs> deny it. But Sigourney Beaver is awesome. Also, it makes you imagine what a coupling between Justin Bieber and Sigourney Weaver would <laughs> like. Oh, no. That's really something special. (laughs) I'm just thinking of Us Magazine for beavers. (laughs) They're just like us. That's all right. I was picturing in Aliens when the alien is like drooling in Sigourney Weaver's face, except it was Justin Bieber. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's wrong in so many ways. All right. Well, that is all we have time for this week. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include the controversial quest to make a contagious vaccine, I was jailed for climbing the shard skyscraper, and 
meet a Canadian scientist who's trying to create sperm in a lab. So all that and more can be found at daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.